our faith in God gives us the power to do the impossible, right? And very, very few of us, of faith or not of faith, ever make that realization, ever completely plumb the depths of the power that faith gives us. Your faith can give you the ability to accomplish the impossible. That's a reflection from Malcolm Gladwell, and he's back with us on today's Focus on the Family with Focus President and author Jim Daly, and I'm John Fuller. Malcolm shared with us how oftentimes what appears to be an obstacle is really an opportunity to change the world. I mean, I love that. That's a big statement. He did that through biblical, historical, and modern examples of men and women who have courageously defied the odds against them, uh, many of whom found their power by their faith in God and their ability to forgive. And uh, you heard that last time. You're going to hear that again today. What I love about Malcolm Gladwell um, throughout his writings and uh, in this conversation is his ability to uh, look at something from a unique vantage point. Uh, These are familiar ideas, but he will illuminate some things that we have missed. I guarantee it. And if you're going through a difficult season in your life and you can't understand why God is letting you uh, go through this adversity, you are especially going to be encouraged by today's program because I think Malcolm will help you understand what God is trying to achieve in letting you go through this adversity. And as is the case with his books, there is sure to be an aha moment where you think, oh, that's it. Uh, That's our prayer for you today. Let's go ahead now and hear the second part of the conversation with Malcolm Gladwell as recorded in New York City on today's Focus on the Family. Malcolm, it's great to have you back at Focus on the Family. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here. Malcolm, you're talking... um, to many people's hearts right now, and they're in the middle of a situation where they're the underdog. They're feeling it. They're living it. It may be the loss of a job, divorce, um, a prodigal son or daughter. Speak to them about hope, because mm-hmm. that's really what you're yeah. saying in your book. There is hope. Just find the right lesson mm-hmm. in what God is showing you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think the one of the themes that I come back to again and again in the book is the difference between compensation learning and capitalization learning. Capitalization learning are the things you learn because you have a bunch of advantages. You're good at it. The world's going in your direction. You know, uh, that's a kind of learning we understand really well, right? You're, you know, you got a great voice, so you go and become a singer and you end up as a rock star, whatever. But there's another kind of learning, and that's compensation learning. And that's the things you learn as uh, the way you approach the world when you are compensating for what you don't have, Mm. for what you're bad at, for what's been taken away from you. And compensation learning is way more difficult, but it is far more powerful. In fact, you talk about people with dyslexia. Exactly, who are a great example of of, uh, when you look at dyslexics, what you discover is two things, that... Some people with dyslexia really get defeated by the world. But if you look at any group of very successful entrepreneurs, and there have been a series of studies of this, when we look at successful entrepreneurs, we find that dyslexics are massively overrepresented among them. These are people who did compensation learning. They were 
the thing that you need to be a success in school was taken away from them. They couldn't read, right? What did they do? You know, that's a, the biggest underdog position you can be in. They didn't give up. What they did is they compensated. They learned how to, to problem solve, to communicate orally, to build teams, to delegate responsibility, to, you know, and I, I interviewed dozens of these incredibly successful dyslexic entrepreneurs, and we're talking about some of the biggest names, I mean, billionaires, and they all told the same story. I was nine years old in grade school. I couldn't read, and so I made friends with Johnny and made him do my homework for me, and I would talk my teacher into moving my grade from a C to a, you know, a C plus, and, you know, and you realized they were learning the kind of skills that would prove to be incredibly useful when they became entrepreneurs. But here's the thing. It wasn't easy, right? Their childhoods weren't fun. They were difficult and hard. So there is that, the thing I would say to someone who is an underdog is, I can't pretend that what you're going through is going to get better tomorrow. It's not going to be easy. All I can say is that what we know about people who have been in situations like yours is that if you have faith and persevere, you can you have an opportunity to learn something you would never learn otherwise, right? And that, if you look at it the right way, that's a gift. Hey, Malcolm, let me ask you this, uh, to put that spiritual uh, context to this. So much of the scripture uh, resonates with what you're saying, because I'm thinking of the words of Jesus and, of course, the Apostle Paul, where they talk about um, when you're weak, you're strong. Um, If you want to be first, then be last. If you want to be the best, then be a servant of all. Um, It's counterintuitive to the human spirit. So Mm -hmm. I'd like to just, with your observations, Talk about that. It's almost like the Bible's telling us yeah. how to behave in yeah. a way that is rewarded in what you've identified in your book, David and Goliath, that yeah. um, you're going to learn hard lessons, but there'll be a benefit to you. Yeah. Yeah. The question is, where does, where does power come from? And I don't mean power in the kind of way we use that word now, but I mean real spiritual power. When Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, he is doing more than being showing humility. You know, doing this thing that the servants always did in that time. It's more than that. It's that he's getting at their feet and listening to them. He's not saying, I'm not your leader. He's absolutely their leader. But what he's saying is, part of what it means for me to be an effective leader is to kneel at your feet and listen to what you have to say, to put myself in a position where I'm not dominating you, dictating to you, or any of those. Um, And that is a a really, really powerful and beautiful lesson. I think of, you know, we're going through this in this country, this enormously divisive debate about law enforcement. It's complicated. All kinds of people are saying all kinds of things. All I will say is this, that those in positions of power need to remember that, that from time to time you need to kneel at the feet of those you are serving Mm. and listen um, at doesn't excuse the other side from behaving badly or it means it's but you have to um if you want to be respected you have to win that respect in fact the quote that jumped out at me in your book was this that power doesn't lead to submission it can lead to defiance yeah that is true in parenting it's true in marriage Mm -hmm. and it's true in culture Yeah. yeah um i really that popped out at me that um 
you've got to be careful when you're wielding power and authority Mm -hmm. to make sure that it's for the benefit of the people that you have power and authority over. Yeah. Right? Yeah. No, it's very... um, I remember my parents switched to the uh, Mennonite church uh, in our town about 15 years ago, and my father came back from his first congregational meeting, and they were choosing a new pastor, and he was completely blown away, and he said, we were interviewing candidates... And the pastor, for assistant pastor, and the pastor of the church sat in the congregation with all of us. And he was like, in other words, the pastor said, I am one of you as we make this crucial decision about our community. I'm not going to dictate, you know, have my choice and ram it down your, I'm going to sit with all all of us together are going to decide who's going to be in the leadership. And that is not the pastor was not abdicating his leadership role. He was accentuating it, right? He was, he was building his foundation. So when he stands up in the pulpit on Sunday morning, you respect and listen to him, right? And that is that, that it is an incredibly difficult lesson to learn and a hard lesson to learn for those in positions of power. I mean, you could, we could bring in every CEO in this country and you know the ones who are jetting places in in helicopters and private planes while they're laying off workers. And we could say to them, look, leadership is about more than simply making smart decisions about the bottom line of your company. It's about being able to, to look the people who work for you in the eye and say, I have earned your respect. Let me um, ask a really tough question. Mm-hmm. And it's not uh, in the book, but I think you can apply it. Mm-hmm. When you look at the human heart and where we're at, in this culture and in other Western cultures, we have such a tendency for Pharisaism, mm-hmm. meaning mm-hmm. I've got it figured out. I know the way to live it. I'm living it pretty well, and now I look down on you. Yeah, yeah. And, and that creates what Jesus went after. Mm-hmm. I mean, he did not appreciate that human heart that had that kind of attitude. Yet it seems like the person, and I don't want to make a broad application here, but when you've got it buttoned down, when adversity is not in your Mm -hmm. situation, where you are living it well, it tends to play into our pride. Yeah. And and it prevents us from learning the very lessons that you talk about in the book. Speak to that component about how we stay humble, how uh, what I see in Christian leadership, unfortunately, is too much pride because we think we've got it nailed down. Yeah, and yeah. we don't make accommodation for the human condition yeah. of sin. Well, this is something I think that's happening in our throughout our culture right now, which is that you know, one th- the one thing as a non-American that always cracks me up about America is people talk about American politics, for example, as being incredibly divided and you know and antagonistic and you know polarized as never before, and I say. You've got to be kidding. The people who are pretending to be so polarized, they're not polarized. They agree on 99 out of 100 things, right? They're, but they're so completely prideful, as you say, and certain of their own correctness that they've chosen to make the one out of 100 thing that they disagree on and blow it all out of proportion, right? That's that same thing. We, if we find it very difficult to say, to acknowledge what we have in common with those who differ with us, and to say on the things that we disagree about that we can have conversations. We can. We don't know all the answers. We have to find a, a better path to the truth. So you're that kind of when, when ordinary 
mortals take on uh, the mantle of certainty, <laughs> they run into trouble. Well, that's right? well said. That's a good way to say it. Uh, let me talk about um, a real heartfelt story that you had in the book about uh, Wilma Dirksen. Mm-hmm. I was really drawn to that story, just the compassion of that situation. Talk about how you integrated that into mm-hmm. David and Goliath. Yeah, I was. I wanted to understand, by the end of the book, my the, the direction the book goes is uh, it ends up with a kind of awestruck appreciation of the power of faith. What is it that faith allows you to do? And that other things that we are obsessed with, money, political power, brilliance, can't bring you to do. And I, I spent some time with a, this extraordinary woman named Wilma Dirksen, who uh, lives in Winnipeg in Canada, and her daughter was brutally murdered um, by a sex offender um, in Winnipeg years ago. And before they even found the murder, just after they found her daughter's body, she and her husband stood up um, and said, we don't know who did this to our daughter, but we are trying to find a way to forgive him. And it's the most, if you can imagine, to my mind, I have... I, I don't think I've ever found or met someone who has displayed as much courage as that. Mm. I cannot imagine anything more impossibly difficult than saying that, right? Someone has done something, the most unspeakable thing you can do to a parent. And they said, we're trying to find a way to forgive this person. And that sentiment came out of their faith. And it was not easy. It was something they struggled with Every day, every day before they said it and every day after. But to me, it was the highest expression of their faith um, because we're called to forgive and it's insanely difficult and our society doesn't reward us for it. Our society rewards us for doing the opposite, for lashing out and... Being um, strong. And being, yeah, quote unquote strong. Right. And, and I just wanted to... I contrast her story with the story of someone who, does, who did the opposite, who chose not to forgive and talked about the consequences of that. And I just, the point was I wanted to get, to get people to understand that this thing she had, she and her husband have in her hearts, which we can't see or feel or measure or any of those things, uh, made, made it possible for them to do something that, you know, a, a giant armed with everything in the world can't do. Um, and if you can read the story of Wilma Dirksen and not come away uh, blown away by the power of faith, you're, you, I don't know, you're, I, <laughs> you're from another planet. Well, and what faith provides uh, the human provides spirit. You. Yeah, the, in I that mean, way. it goes back to what she had is what David had in his heart and what the Huguenots had, which is what I think she and her husband understood was our faith in God gives us the power to do the impossible, right? And very, very few of us, of, of faith or not of faith, ever make that realization, ever completely plumb the depths of the power that faith gives us. In fact, uh, another quote that stood out for me was, and correct me, I'm just going from memory here, it's always difficult to quote an author <laughs> with his content, <laughs> yeah. but in essence you were saying that a person who mistakes the... Uh, facts, what they perceive to be the facts, can be disastrous in terms of decision-making and outcome. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and that's really the point of the book is you've got to understand your environment. And that takes a lot of different filters, including a faith filter. What yeah. is God doing? Yeah. And then applying that in your circumstance, which, again, all of the characters you note in the book basically did. Yeah. And, yeah. But talk about the importance of knowing as best as you can the facts so that your decision-making mm-hmm. is more in line with the outcome that you hope for. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a good point. The, you know, I have, a, um, I have a chapter in the book about a guy, uh, a doctor named Emil Freireich, who is this extraordinary man who was one of the, basically is the guy who cures childhood leukemia. And he, for about a 10-year period, when he was a very young man, he, he tried to convince the world of a particular strategy against this disease, and everyone thought that he was wrong and was a, um, more than wrong, that he was a monster, and he was torturing children, and he ought to be kicked out and fired, and, and he persevered and persevered and persevered, and he was right. Huh. And that story is a really important one because it is he represents the marriage of these two notions. He is a absolutely brilliant man who had an insight into a disease that no one else had. So he had a command of his field. He had the facts in a way that no one else did. But that was not enough, right? That being in full command of intellectually of what had to be done was half the battle. The other half was having the power in his heart to be able to persevere in the face of enormous opposition and the people denouncing him and turning their backs on him and not at one point he was conducting experiments in at NCI in Washington in these wards full of dying babies mm. and nobody was helping him because they thought what he was doing was wrong he was getting up every morning at 5 a.m. and working until midnight for months on a stretch i mean it was it's an incredible story of what and you realize that you know you look at that man 30 years later and you say he's a genius and you realize that's just the beginning of the story of what he was, right? It's heart plus brain. And I go back to the point I've been making, made throughout the book and trying to be making today on this show, which is that we talk about the brain and we don't talk about the heart, right? And right. we need both, right? It's to sail into the world with only the measurable and the tangible is to be ill-equipped. And and what's so good about that and what you're saying is that the world typically looks at the brain because it's measurable, it's academic, it's outputs, but the heart is Is scary. It's intangible, it's unknown, and that's what faith deals with. Mm. You've spoken, Malcolm, about um, several stories that are touching the heart, and Mm -hmm. it's my understanding that as you were writing this book, or at least before you wrote it, uh, you encountered some things that really kind of reset your mm-hmm. faith journey. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got the head part, and you've been exercising that mm-hmm. quite a bit. Mm-hmm. How have you changed as you've interacted with some of this material and, and put the book together? Yeah. I mean, I I was raised in a very religious world, environment, and I had drifted away. And, you know, intellectually, I understood the importance of religious faith, but I just was, you know, living in a world that was different from... And I didn't intend this book to be, it wasn't going to be a book about faith. It was going to be a book about something else entirely. And as I got deeper and deeper into it, and I, you know, I read the story of the Huguenots, and I met Wilma Dirksen, and I kept on, 
getting exposed to these stories and realizing I can't, I, and being drawn back to the world I was raised in and the faith that I was introduced to as a child and realizing, and understand, finally understanding it on a deeper level that you can't sit and talk to Wilma Dirksen for three hours and not believe that faith is the most powerful thing in the world. Mm. Just can't, right? I mean, it's like, uh, so it was, it, I was it fundamentally affected by, this book was a, you know, was a blessing for me. I mean, it was, yeah. even if it had never sold a single copy, um, I would have considered it to be the most important thing, book I've ever written, you know. Uh, Malcolm, what I so appreciate about it it has reinforced some things that have been in my heart when I look at some of the political debate and we talk about power mm -hmm. in this country. Um, I'm saying something now that some people um, are offended by within the Christian community, and that is Christians tend historically to do really well when we're the joyful minority. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is uh, we're not wielding power. We're responding to it, and we demonstrate our faith in that kind of a situation. Certainly true of early Rome yeah. and what Jesus and the disciples encountered. They were all martyred mm -hmm. for what they believed. We're seeing that happening in the Middle East right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the great things I think the Lord laid on our hearts is to finish the houses for the 21 martyrs that were killed. So focus on the family. Mm -hmm. uh, we started construction not long ago, and and we're going to do that um, as a statement to say we stand with you in that. Mm -hmm. But here's the sobering thing that occurred in those discussions. When I talked with them, they were weeping, but they said, we're weeping not from pain, we're weeping with joy mm -hmm. that God would choose someone in our family mm -hmm. to suffer for his name. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. a totally different paradigm. Yeah. That's not winning in this context. That has really shaken me. Mm -hmm. about what's important in this life, to see mostly illiterate Christians mm -hmm. that are living in squalor demonstrate such profound faith to say, we know what's real, and we count it a joy mm -hmm. to suffer for Jesus the way that we have. Um, that really made an impact on me, and that's what you're talking about, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that it's a, it is a radical act to express your faith fully. I mean, I think sometimes we can be so comfortable in this amazing world we build for ourselves that we lose sight of the fact that, you know, this is a faith that was started by a group of revolutionaries. And to this day, there are people who are, like you've just described, who are living at the fringe, right? They are meeting the world head on and dealing with, you know, unspeakable things because of their faith. And that should remind us of our roots. That's where we came from. Right? And that's what you've done so beautifully in your book, David and Goliath. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, author of that book, thanks for being with us on Focus so on the much. Family. And that'll wrap up a fascinating two-part conversation with Malcolm Gladwell as we come to a close of today's Focus on the Family. Uh, John, I love Malcolm's conclusion that as people of faith, 
We need to believe in the power of God to help us overcome whatever difficult circumstances we may be facing. That's brilliant theology right there. That doesn't mean that our problems go away, but God will give you the faith and the ability to walk through seemingly insurmountable odds. And we might grumble and we might complain, but what is God teaching us? And that's what um, this has been all about. Here at Focus on the Family, we want to help strengthen your faith uh, through our broadcasts, through articles, through other tools. And I hope we have achieved that today. Our program was provided by Focus on the Family. And on behalf of Jim Daly and the entire team, thanks for listening. I'm John Fuller. Today's broadcast really touched on how our faith is the key to us being powerful for God's kingdom. And Malcolm Gladwell spoke about ways in which people have been faced with intense adversity and become successful and powerful people on the other side of that battle through faith in Christ. I hope you've been encouraged. Here at the close, I want to thank all of you who financially support Focus on the Family. In the last 12 months, just the last 12 months, 10,000 families stepped up to engage their communities for Christ because of the work of Focus on the Family. We do that through our broadcasts, events, other tools that we put in the hands of people who need it right then and there. We want to empower you to be a light in the culture and share the love of God with those around you. That's what it's all about, and especially in your family. So thank you for your partnership. And if you haven't given in a while, may I ask you to help us? That's how the bills are paid, through donations like yours. So thank you in advance for helping us. It's great to have you join us today. I'm Graham Schnell for Focus on the Family Africa, inviting you back next time when we'll once again help you and your family thrive in Christ.